Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast exploring all media from all perspectives. Today we're discussing queer representation in video games and other LGBTQ issues with respect to video games with game designer Naomi Clark. I'm Mark Linsmeyer, completionist enough to romance all the NPCs. And I am Tyler Hislop, fitting not so comfortably inside your predefined box. So before we bring out our guest, Tyler, thanks for ushering in pretty much pop season two with me. It's been a great 100 episodes. You guys have done amazing. I'm a little bit sad to see that there's a bit of a fracture going on, but it's not a full fracture. It's a semi-fracture with some with some new elements coming in. So I think it'll be great nonetheless. Yeah, so I think we can maybe talk after the interview and kind of riff a little more on what might happen with season two. Just as a way of introducing Naomi here, I think we're going to have in this season, which who knows how long that'll be, and who knows whether I'll change my mind about this, but two distinct kinds of episodes. So there'll be interview episodes where we have Somebody like Naomi, who she was recommended to us by a previous video game guest as having given talks on things on this topic that we're talking about. And so if she monologues at us a lot of the time, or, you know, it's an interview, that's fine. Whereas a lot of the others are going to expressly be panels and all the guests, I'm going to try to only have one new guest per panel. And the rest will all be from either you or Brian or Erica or folks who have been guests in the past, you know, known quantities of some sort. And they will all know that, hey, you are one of three guests, so we're going to have sort of a balanced panel discussion, and it's not going to be an interview with one person. That said, I am excited. After reading what Naomi had to write about, we will link to this talk that she gave with a colleague, Queering Human Game Relations. All right, and here is Naomi Clark. Naomi, thanks for coming on. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Glad to be here with you. Can you say a little about some of the games you have designed, why we picked you for this topic? Sure. Yeah. So I've been designing games for a long time. I started doing it professionally back in 1999 with a game called Sissy Fight 2000, which I, you know, I guess is probably related to this overall topic. And we were back then trying to run against the grain of what we saw as the sort of stereotypical, oversaturated game out there that was just aimed at like a certain audience, mostly of young guys, portraying conflict in a militarized or purely kind of violent sense. And we wanted to explore a different kind of conflict. So that game is about middle school girls vying for social dominance in the schoolyard by tormenting each other or supporting each other, making alliances and, and betraying each other. We just wanted to portray a different kind of schoolyard rumble. We were really thinking even back then about how we could turn expectations or even patterns of gameplay on their head, right? Like what could we do to take what we knew worked well about video games and about non-digital games as well, because we were pretty influenced by card games in designing that game as well, and sort of turn it into something new. 
that's kind of what I think of first when we're talking about this topic of queering games, I guess is the phrase I'd use for it. And so that was, gosh, you know, like 22 years ago, that was one of the first games you could play with other people on a website without installing software. You could sort of just go to sissyfight.com and play with each other. And it's still around today. We rebooted it a few years back and you can still play it. But I went on to work on a lot of games for Lego for many years. I worked on games for kids there. Then I worked in what was known in the 2000s as the casual game market, sort of making games for a mass market audience beyond the stereotypical gamer game. And these days, I run a department at NYU, the uh, the NYU Game Center, which is the game design department there. Uh, So we have about 200 students getting degrees in game development and game design. It's amazing. So I was trying to figure out what, if we're just talking about queer representation in video games, I mean, there's sort of a limit. Okay, having narratives with more LGBTQ people and themes in them, that's great. But that's not fundamentally different than like what we would be asking for in TV and movies. Adding games, well, it's not just depicting stories. It's like actually putting you in a situation where you're dealing with people, which makes it easier to brainwash, you know, or to introduce radical ideas, to politically motivate and manipulate people, to introduce them to more things. Can you say a little more about how this discussion can be about more than just representation? That's great. I'm glad you started it there because I think you're exactly right. That's where people often go first. They're like, oh, well, is there a character in this game that's LGBTQ? It's the easy... I don't know. I don't want to say low-hanging fruit because sometimes there are barriers to telling those types of stories, right? Or sometimes there's a a really good reason to tell a story that comes from someone's personal experience or from a great piece of fiction that someone's written. But it's true that in games, we're talking about slightly different issues. It's interesting that you use the term brainwashing, right? Because (laughs) that's being such a fear. And I think of that fear as having two sides, right? People being afraid, like, well, what are these games doing to my kid's brain, right? Like that's the kind of the old fear of that somehow games are fundamentally different from if a kid is sitting in front of a television watching a TV show. If they're playing a video game, somehow it's like rewiring your mind. I think I got that from your article, just how it's almost a lot of video games are like training to be a capitalist in the system, that you're doing work that you're grinding so much. It's not fun in any identifiable sense anymore. And that is somehow training us to be good workers in the capitalist economy. Right. Yeah. And so the question is like, what do we think training is, right? Like if I'm being trained to do a job, let's say I'm working at an Amazon delivery depot and I'm going through all these paces and learning to do this stuff. I guess we can think of that as like, it is affecting our brains, right? We're going through the paces, we're getting to certain habits, we have muscle memory and all this stuff. I don't know if we think of that as like, does it fundamentally change who we are? Like if I were to quit my job at Amazon and say, you know what, I want to go, I'm going to play guitar instead. Like I can just leave that behind, right? Any kind of programming I've got on the job. And I guess I think of games as processes that can affect our brain quite profoundly. But we have this funny way of thinking about it where we're thinking, oh, this is going to insert something foreign into our mind that's going to change who we are fundamentally, right? Or change our attitudes. And I think it's a really interesting question. I don't think that the science is totally settled on this. I guess I said before that it was a double-sided fear because I think in the game industry, there's been this real fear of, oh my gosh, if people say that games can change your brain, can affect you, then we're going to be in big trouble. We're going to get regulated. The government is going to be like, these are like drugs in electronic form that are destroying your synapses or like or rewiring your brain, right? You don't have the vape attachment for PS5 yet? 
Yeah, they probably do have that by now. It's true. But what are they more like? I think it's really interesting that video games, we're not quite sure. Are they like drugs or pornography or something like that? Where we're really concerned about how they might affect our mind? Or are they more like learning to do something? Like when you learn to play the guitar or learn to work in an Amazon warehouse, yeah, you're changing your brain. You're like putting new connections in your brain, right? It goes without saying that anything that we engage with or interact with there's going to be some manipulation that occurs. There's going to there's sensory data input. There's a response to the effect. And then we build these apparatuses around encouraging that manipulative effect. Yeah, that's exactly right. I am of the frame of mind that games are more significant in some way that maybe we don't fully understand than if I were just to read a book, right? So if I play a game where I'm learning how to do geometric tilings, I'm learning how to tile a floor. And that's actually a, a very old game mechanic that's been around in a lot of different types of games. Then because I'm going through a process of doing it, figuring out what works and what doesn't, I'm learning in a different way than if I were just to read a book where like, here's how tiles work. And everybody understands that too, right? Intuitively, right? Once you do it, you understand it in a different way. It's a very simple thing that's at the heart of why people feel like, oh, games are more significant. Maybe they're training us to do this or that. But the thing that I find fascinating culturally is that somehow this seems more ominous mm -hmm. in games. Maybe it's because they're forms of entertainment. Maybe because they have a long history of representing violent or military conflict of some sort. You know, go, going all the way back to games like chess, right? Which is a military conflict game. And maybe it's because there's a lot of racism and sexism in the game industry kind of preying on that, I don't know, again, the lowest hanging fruit shock jockey content in games. There are any number of things that we could say like, well, does it really have to be like this? That we might say this is where this apprehension comes from, but it's become a fraught subject, right? So there's no easier way to like have a lightning rod in games than to say, you know what? Games are going to make kids violent than like, you know, everybody will freak out if you say that. But I think that there's a whole interesting topic in here that doesn't get delved into enough because of that fear, because of that need, those knee-jerk reactions, maybe on, on both sides that games do have the ability to affect us just like anything we, any practice we engage in does. And because games are designed processes that we like to do, hopefully if they work well, we're engaged in them for their own sake. I think that people sense this is why they could be really powerful because, ooh, I'm playing a gardening game or a tile laying game. And I actually want to do this because I'm not having to do it for my job. I'm not, nobody's forcing me to do it. I'm doing it for fun. And I'm kind of, I'm learning something and I feel my brain changing. So there's something that we can tap into there. And there are some people out there who have really thought, well, we should harness this for good, right? We should teach everybody to mm -hmm. recycle or teach everybody about things like why it's important to get vaccinated mm -hmm. or right, like all sorts of messages. Like, could those be delivered through games? So there are some people working on that. And there are other people, I don't know, just trying to find out what games can do. Like, how can they mean things in interesting, different ways? just by doing various types of artistic experiments. And I think all of this is, yeah, it is related to the subject of queering too, because that for me is just saying, well, what assumptions should we be unthinking? Like what's a new approach we could come at this from? What are the unspoken assumptions that are kind of dominating this landscape? Would you say that there are folks that are trying to actually introduce game mechanics in everyday tasks and things like that to gamify everyday life. There's something queerish about that where you introduce this external influence into what is a normal everyday kind of thing and you gamify it. You, you set up tasks and you, you reward yourself points and some things like this. And it makes the run of the mill kind of everyday task potentially more fun or you've manipulated yourself into <laughs> convincing yourself it's a good idea. 
I mean, I think this is probably why I thought of the Amazon warehouse example, right? Because they actually have games that Amazon has designed to try and motivate people and get people excited who are working in a warehouse. Like, how many orders can you fulfill? Like, can you do these types of orders? Is that the opposite then of querying? I guess my intuition is something like you have a normal set of operations. You develop a game with specific mechanics and you have a whole industry that is set up to kind of design based on these bare bones loot and repeated gameplay and aesthetic appeal, all the stuff that goes into good game design. But I feel like the notion of querying is rendering the normal obsolete and bringing in a, maybe not a new normal. Maybe this is kind of the, not a problem I have, but a question like, are we trying to bring in a new normal or are we trying to slant the normal into something that's slightly different that, that engages you differently? You can talk about it as troubling too, right? You're saying like, oh, okay, everything seems totally normal and fine. But then how are you going to like rumple that up? How are you going to trouble it or disrupt it or say, hey, wait a second, what are the questions we're not asking here? And so, yeah, I think that that does run generally in the opposite direction of, say, like a business enterprise trying to say, how can we make our workers more productive? (laughs) In some ways, we can't think of anything maybe that's less like querying than that, right? Because it's just full on the, the completely expected normal motivation of make workers work harder and more efficiently because it makes somebody money, right? So yeah, if we blow all that up, there might be tons of other possibilities out there, right? But that's the interesting thing is when we talk about something like gamification, like how can we connect games to what we're doing in the rest of our lives? Those examples come to mind right away because they're so, so normal. They're like so expected. And that's the kind of stuff where you have to think about like, well, how would we blow that up? How could we like remove it from our landscape of thinking about the possibilities of games so we can see like what other kinds of things are out there and find out what other sorts of experiments might work or might fail? Like we don't know, in part because, yeah, like the landscape is really dominated by various ways of making money, whether it's Amazon doing those, you know, warehouse games or like you were saying, like loot boxes and various strategies to get people engaged with and addicted to mobile games. Again, it's like that becomes the really bright star in the solar system that like blocks out all of the other light from more distant stars. Can we slow down just for a minute to talk a little more about using the term queering like this, right? The show Queer Eye does not suggest that the panel is consulting with them about their fashion, change their wardrobe into some sort of performance art. And like you could just wear plastic bags like that is not what queering in that context in sort of the more ordinary context means. But so why would we want to say that anything that is sort of a a disruption of the status quo, or you could see how being a queer person in a straight society, well, that is an example of, you know, everybody has certain expectations. I interviewed Judith Butler, and she used this example of just the fact that somebody in a hotel was trying to bring her some room service or something and could not get past the fact that she, you know, should I say sir or madam to you? And she just had to say, look, does bringing me the thing require that you make a decision about my gender? Like, so there's something about queering in that case that there are customs that we have that it might make us just question like, well, why do even this concern with which gender you are delve so deeply into just common interactions? So in taking that to video games, you could see how, all right, well, let's use the term queering to talk about disruption of sort of expected efficiency-minded capitalist modes of play, but say a little more about it seems like there are other radical words that you could use besides queering for that. Queering only seems to be a small portion of the types of deviation from the norm. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think it's part of a family of words that various people use, right? Like, so if I was a if I was a venture capitalist, I'd probably say disrupting instead, right? Like, and, <laughs> and that would have a slightly different tone. But yeah, I think, you know, queer is a word I'm fond of, in part because I'm part of the LGBT community. I consider myself queer. I'm married to a woman, and I'm trans and all sorts of other stuff that sort of, for me, that is best represented by the word queer. And it's interesting that you mentioned queer eye, right? Because I sort of think of that as maybe sitting somewhere on the bridge between these two uses. Because on one hand, on one hand queer eye for the straight guy just means, okay, there's a straight guy, and then there's a whole bunch of gay guys that are going to come and say, like, hey, you need a makeover, right? But at the same time, like, why would we assume that these guys are going to be better than if you get, like, I don't know, the dos equis uh, spokesperson guy, the you know the most debonair, handsome man in the world. Like if he could come and give the straight guy a makeover, right? Uh, he's like the most straight guy. And I think that the reason for that is partially like they're outsiders. They come from some completely different perspective that you haven't thought of before, right? They're not part of the usual customs or expectations of like, well, you know, how do you groom yourself as a straight guy? Well, I don't know. You know, Schick will tell you that, like, if you're a straight guy, you need a, a razor with five blades. And you need some deodorant in a black bottle or something, right? But the queer eyes will, guys will come and say something that you didn't expect. It's like an unexpected manifestation of, like, think outside of gender boxes for a second a little bit, because even though they're all guys, they think about gender in a little bit of a different way, right? Their gender expressions are different. Their attitudes towards, you know, fashion and grooming or whatever are different. So, you know, I think there's a little bit of a tinge of that, something bursting in from somewhere else where it's like people have had to live, the LGBTQ people have had to sort of live or find communities or make our lives outside of these expectations and customs just out of necessity for a long time. And so the sense for queer, I was like, okay, that gives you an ability to kind of look at things from a different perspective. And in my experience, that's quite true. And it's been really true in games. In about maybe 2012 or 2011, there was a wave of of people making games that was driven by a lot of easier to use tools and like lower cost of entry for making digital games, kind of like the equivalent of the camcorder or the turntables or something like that started to happen in software and games in a big way. And with that, a whole lot of younger and more queer creators came onto the scene and started making games. And the games that they made were really different. They were no longer sort of following the conventions and expectations or or even the definitions of like, well, what does it have to be in order to be officially considered a game? All that stuff started getting blown up. And it was, I think, creatively a tremendous time for, for the game industry in general. You even see some of those ripples from that affecting like larger, bigger budget games because people think about games in a little bit of a different way now. Although I think you notice the changes in how people are thinking about games much more in the independent experimental communities, like making smaller games. But for me, when I saw that happening, and of course, I, you know, I'd been working in games for over 10 years at that point. I was like, oh, okay, this is really exciting. There's really a reason to use the word queering in the context of games because there are all of these LGBTQ people who are kind of driving this this particular type of change and also telling their personal stories at the same time, sometimes doing both of these things at once, right? So they were queer in more in more senses than one. And, you know, I feel like I should say not everybody necessarily uses the word queer for themselves. Sometimes it's it's considered a little controversial. Like some people are like, 
please don't use that word for me. I'm uncomfortable with it, right? So I, I guess when I use it, I mean to talk about people who adopt that word for themselves. Say like, okay, you know, I may be a lesbian, I may be gay, but really I want to use the word queer because it signifies something more than just, I don't know, a factual description of this is my gender, this is the gender of the person that I'm romantically involved with. Not just a sort of a statement of fact, but also like, here's my outlook on life. It's not just about being gay, it's about being queer, because that comes with the perspective of, hey, we have to overturn expectations when they're not actually just, when they're not uh, helping people live their lives, right? And so I think that's why a lot of people adopted that word. And it's also part of why it started taking on these other connotations of disrupting or troubling things. And yeah, Judith Butler was one of the people who really pioneered this field of queer studies or queer theory, right, which looks into how all kinds of systems maybe could use this sort of disruption or need to be unthought and, and rethought in a different way. What are some examples in games that you've designed or games that you've played where there have been specific mechanics? The, the game that you mentioned early on in the conversation stands out where you have a relatively normal, I, I have a 10-year-old son, he's about to go into middle school. I know he's going to encounter the kind of the petty nonsense that goes on with uh, preteens and things of that nature. What are some other examples of mechanics or scenarios that you've, that you've seen or designed that can shine light on the queerification of, of game mechanics. You're going to set your son up with sissy fight, Tyler, when we're done here? Just to <laughs> Yeah, that one was, was pretty overt and in your face in some ways, because it was like, oh, you know, you don't get to pick who you are in this. You, you, it's not a power fantasy of the, of the type you expect. You're not like designing your avatar and choosing the avatar's gender. Instead, you're designing an avatar, but they're all middle school girls, right? So that was the thing that was like most like sort of blew people's minds. They're like, wait, what, what do you mean? Like, I have to be a middle school girl. That's not that weird to if I were to make a movie or a novel where all the characters are middle school girls, right? But in a game, it's like, oh, no, like I should get to sort of choose and it should be like an empowering fantasy. So that kind of blew that up. Other games that I've worked on, one game that I think about when it comes to this question is I worked on a game called Wonder City that was funded in part by PBS. And I did it in, in conjunction with some documentary filmmakers. And that was a game where you make choices as part of a storyline and you have to sort of choose what you value, like what's important to you. And the traditional mode of those types of choices in games are, well, first, is there a right choice and a wrong choice? And that's a quiz, right? And then in the 90s, we started to see more and more games where it's like you could choose whether you wanted to be good or evil. And there's like a good path and the evil path. And, you know, that some of the Star Wars games are famous for this. Like you could be, you know, you could go to the dark side of the force if you wanted, right? And then there were games where you get different types of endings depending on, you know, who you were pursued romantically or, or like how you resolve a moral dilemma. And what I wanted to do was make a game that instead of just having fixed endings that were good or bad or positive or negative, have something that would reflect back to the player, like, well, this is what you decided to value in the course of playing this game. So in that game, you're playing as a, a teenager who discovers that you have superpowers, and then you have to figure out how to use those superpowers. So in some ways, it's a pretty traditional, like, coming-of-age superhero story. There are tensions about, like, well, you know, do you keep your identity secret? Do you intervene in situations or do you try and sort of like let people resolve them for themselves? Like that, those types of moral dilemmas. But the way that we constructed the story was there's not a single right outcome. It's competing goods, right? So like all, like all of the things, the choices that we had were like, well, there was a reason that you might want to 
preserve your privacy or build closer bonds with people by letting people in on secrets, right? And that you sort of have to decide for yourself what's right. And that creates a different story, but it's not like there's fixed endings that are good or bad. And what I wanted to look at for that game was things like personality tests, Hmm. where you get a complicated answer that sort of reflects back like, well, here's who we think you are based on what you answered in this. So that was a model that I hadn't seen used before in games to think about like what the endings or outcomes of games are that I was trying to go a little bit against the grain. And that might seem like, okay, is that particularly queer? Well, for me in my process, it was because I sort of had to unthink the traditional structures that were already there. You're changing the nature of the fail state and the success state. Both of those states are are very much um, ingrained in games. If you could just upset that a little bit and have it be more of an ongoing thing or more of a discovery process rather than reaching a logical conclusion. Yeah, exactly. And that's one I'm really interested in disrupting is this idea that there's always a a win state and a lose state or a success state and a fail state. Because I think that there's, there's actually a bunch of more interesting possibilities. Even if you look at some of the oldest competitions like a race, you don't just win or lose a race, right? You come in like a certain place. And that's actually a structure that Outside of races, we haven't really figured out how to use as much as I think we could have in games. So once you start looking at it this way, you're like, wait a second, there's so many different ways of structuring play that we really just, we're just scratching the surface with the most popular games, in part because we're like, yeah, we know this works. We simulate a war and then you like shoot each other, right? It's like, that's okay. Yeah, we know that one works. But what about all of the other universe of possibilities? So I do this a lot, these types of experiments a lot in card games as well. So probably the game that people associate me with the most in the last five years ago is a card game called Consentical, which is about trying to have sex with an alien, even though you can't understand each other. And so in that game, I was like, well, I don't really want you to win sex. Like, how do you win sex? Like, is it like, well, you you have this many orgasms and you win or whatever, right? And like, if it's not good, then you lose. Like, it didn't really seem like a binary, like win-loss made sense there. So instead, what I did is I made it a cooperative game. And so you you play together, but you end up with slightly different um, conditions, like like the start of the game and the begin and the end of the game the, and the middle of the game, the two players are in different situations, and you end up in a slightly different situation. And then you look together at your sc- various types of scores at the end of the game that represent how much trust you invested in your intimate encounter and how much satisfaction you felt like you got out of it. And then there's a chart that's again, it's, it's kind of like the, and this one was sort of definitely influenced by by like Cosmo quizzes, I have to say, right? Where it's like you you look at your score and you're like, okay, here's what it means. And there's a couple different things that are based on your combined score, your score alone, and like what the differences between your your scores were. And it tells you like a little tiny tiny story based on that. And again, that was my attempt to sort of say, what if it wasn't just like a win or lose kind of thing? And some people were like, couldn't handle that. They were like, I don't get it. This doesn't seem like a game. Are we always winning? Well, no, you're, you know, you, how much you win really varies, right? So it's like, okay, yeah, if you played a game that represents sex and you, you did the sex and, uh, you didn't just give up partway through, then it's like, sure, you won. <laughs> you didn't. But like how mind blowing it was or like what it represented to you, that's like sort of differs depending on, on how you play. And I felt like I had to do that in order to tackle a, a subject like a sexual encounter, which is relatively rare in games, except in the most simplified ways, in part because the most traditional structures aren't great for doing more unusual topics. Yeah. 
We need to stop and pay the bills. And speaking of paying the bills, if you are carrying a credit balance month after month, that is bad. It can feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of debt. Well, Upstart can help you make that final payment so you can get ahead. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether you're paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. So debt consolidation is a good thing. I did it through having my mortgage reassessed and attaching a bunch of credit card debt to that through my local credit union. There are lots of ways to do this. I'm just asking that you consider Upstart as one of those potential ways. You definitely, of course, always have to do your research. Upstart knows that you're more than just your credit score and is expanding access to affordable credit. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. And unlike the process I went through, Upstart is fast and convenient. There's a five-minute online rate check that will allow you to see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 to $50,000, and you can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com pretty. That's upstart.com pretty. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. I mean, of course, it can be something you throw into a longer narrative, and that's been the main way to expand inclusion, is at least to not make your plots completely heteronormative. Like, there are a lot of games that are basically interactive novels, and so in that case, it's going to come out one way or the other, and it would be transgressive, and I guess there have been some games that have, you know, in The Last of Us, Two, you know, your main character is gay and you can't make choices that change that. You can't decide I'm going to date the guy that, you know, is her friend at the beginning instead. That's just the way that this flows. And the fact there have been stories like that with heteronormative plots since the beginning of storytelling in games. And yet this is seen, even though it's really not doing anything particularly norm challenging in terms of the mechanics. Is just through this narrative thing, again, this is sort of the low-hanging fruit, is seen as somehow revolutionary. Right, yeah. And you know, you can kind of understand why that is. Like, it is important for people to sort of see themselves and their own experiences and, and maybe have that possibility be out there in media, right? But games have always been an interesting space, I think, in part because of the open-endedness of play, right? So even though we were saying, like, well, Sissy Fight was interesting because it didn't let you design your character. And maybe The Last of Us is also interesting because it's like, okay, that character is gay. You can't do anything about it. There's also been some interesting room for this stuff to seep in through games like The Sims, right? And The Sims, the classic dollhouse game that was, you know, for a while, one of the the best-selling retail games ever, they just sort of decided, like, you know what? We're not going to put a restriction on this. We're going to let your Sims fall in love with whoever. like, And you can make the two girl dolls kiss or the two, two boy dolls kiss just like a kid could with actual dolls. And just by saying, you know what? We're not going to artificially restrict that with code and like lock that off and made it like a really interesting game for expression of gay relationships. And it was kind of quietly groundbreaking, kind of just pushed that forward. It's interesting that a lot of what you're saying seems obvious to me that Utilizing these sorts of strategies will start to make games represent real life more than the arbitrary contrivances of these highly designed games where you have these deliberate start and end states where, for the most part, our life ends and we have a series of successes and failures and we have a series of not so favorable outcomes and maybe more favorable outcomes. And that seems to be to be more representative of everyday life for, for anyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's something that kind of works in our favor, that game designers and a lot of game players have a longing to be able to 
represent things situationally with enormous amount of nuance. Create a situation in a game that you could imagine yourself in, you could sort of cast yourself into and play around with that has as much nuance and detail as life, right? And so to some extent, I'm a little bit like, yeah, we don't always have to do that, right? Because I, I wouldn't want to say paintings should always like be representational, right? Like it's okay to have things that are not trying to be faithful to life. But in games, I think that, that there are some interesting questions there, right? Because it's been much easier for games to go really abstract and to simplify stuff in a way that allows us to manipulate them with math and rules and logic, right? So I think for in some ways for games, the challenge is like, how do we bring that nuance back in? Maybe without always having to have multi-million dollar budgets, right? Like that's the sort of the big industrial approach right now. It's like, yeah, bring nuance in by having like lots of expensive voice acting and like incredibly detailed 3D scenes, a sort of obvious like brute force way of like adding nuance. Mm-hmm. But I think we're still exploring how to have that kind of nuance in the system of the game, in the rules and the outcomes, in the processes that go on. Yeah, and I think that that's where there's still a lot of interesting work left Absolutely. to be done. Well, and of course, just being able to control the appearance of your character, you know, the fact that that is, in most games, not a, a huge uh, deterrent in terms of the processing, right? You're going to have your 3D modeled character running around doing this stuff it's not like you're creating individual animatic panels for every single like angle that this person is at. That's not the way these things are constructed. So there's so many games that have so much freedom now in how you can construct. And I was just looking at a list of ones that are particularly friendly to non-binary choices. Tyler, you were saying you're playing a lot of cyberpunk, right? Yeah, cyberpunk. I mean, it really gives you all the options to kind of throw in on your character at once, which is, it's exciting to see that, but it, I would say that that's a good example because it is high fidelity and you do have a lot of character customization options and there, there's really no limit. You can choose to make your character represent what you want. There's no male, female option. You just choose the attributes that you want, which is cool, but it is just throwing a character into an, a predefined scenario. So it's, it's great. It doesn't quite do enough, I think. Right. It doesn't really mean anything exactly. in the context of the game, right? Like, it makes no difference to the game one way or another. And I think it's sort of there in part because they knew that it would be slightly controversial or eye-catching, right? But they're also sort of assiduously avoiding make, trying to make any kind of statement about queerness or transness. And that's kind of the modus operandi, unfortunately, for the, the large-scale, you know, big industry games. It's like, oh, we're, you know, we're not trying to make a statement here. We're not trying to like rock the boat or anything because there's often too much heat and noise around this stuff, especially when kind of, you know, the more entrenched, maybe like reactionary wing of gamers gets involved and they don't want anything to change or don't want other audiences beyond themselves to be catered to. And so, I don't know, it has made a lot of this discussion a little unproductive. Or if you're making a, a large scale game in a larger studio, there are people doing interesting work, but they often have to do a little bit on the DL or like not really talk about it in public. It's frustrating. And the um, it's really only at that scale. I would say, you know, you have to have a fairly large studio of like maybe 30 to 50 people, which is, you know, not large, you know, when we're thinking about like Hollywood movies or, or big video games. But that's the scale that you need to have in order to have like a character creator with lots and lots of options. All of the, the smaller scale companies, they tend to either work in sort of lower fidelity. Right. So you could make it look however you want, but it's going to be two bit. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, or they, they're like, okay, we're making a game that's about a particular character and like you, you can't change it, right? Because that's just less expensive in terms. You're right that you don't have to animate every frame, but you do have to create a lot of poses and do a lot of 3D modeling and animation and have complicated skeleton systems and things like that. You know? Is it going far enough to build a world that saturates enough characters that have enough diversity of interactions and diversity of, of inputs like the Mass Effect universe and there are other games like that where they try to kind of factor in a diverse enough series of inputs that is representative enough. Do we need something that kind of integrates more queerification mechanics into the standard open world story-driven games with a lot of characters in them? Yeah, I like to think of it as not not like an either or, right? Like I think these are very different kinds of purposes for play. On one hand, games like Mass Effect or or even like, you know, Cyberpunk they are exercises in fantasy and the ones like, yeah, but both Mass Effect and Cyberpunk where you can sort of create your character and you have the feeling of guiding a character on a path that sort of represents you and who you are or your values or like a, a character that you want to role play as that might be quite different from yourself. I think it's fantastic to make those very open to lots of different kinds of people because I think that type of fantasy Role play, it's a very natural part of human culture. It's something that kids engage in all the time just by playing pretend, right? And so these software engines are high-end, fancy, make-believe tools for adults, which I think is great and healthy in a lot of ways. It's interesting if you look at the games that are not even 2-bit, that are just text. There are a lot of games that are of this sort that are only text that are pretty popular on mobile platforms especially. A company that specializes in them, Choice of Games. And there are some other mobile game companies like Pixelberry that make games where you sort of can express yourself in this way within one type of genre setting or another. And those games are even more wide open in terms of the types of choices that you can make, the types of people you can be, the ways that you can express yourself. And it just suggests to me like that purpose, the sort of role playing and and fantasy just goes on and on and on and on and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's one whole direction. And then the, what, you're, what you mentioned, the queerification of mechanics, I think that's a different thing that is interesting in a different way. And for me, I feel like it's a more fundamental, like really digging into the bones of how these things are made. It's not like figuring out all the interesting places you could go in a car. It's like, wait, what is a car? Let's take it apart. Let's see if we can make something new out of these pieces and so I think it's a, yeah, I'm interested in it for different reasons. It's also like you can do weird little experiments in your garage with that kind of stuff to just sort of see what happens. And a lot of them won't work. Just like you know, if you take a car apart and you try to make it into a helicopter, it's like not going to work nine times out of 10. But that's where like, you know, I think that there are discoveries to be made in how we play and like what kinds of things we can do with these imagined situations that I think are the fundamental building block of game experiences. Well, let's talk about glitches. It was an example you brought up in that talk. Say a little more about sort of how the glitch being something that, well, it's probably not the developer's intention. It's probably the result of complex systems interacting in a, in a crazy way or just even things that didn't have a big enough playtesting team and things that they did not know that the user would possibly do. But you were saying some of these could actually be intentional or you could allow it to stay or, you know, they could challenge the formulaic character of most games in some interesting way. And while you're at it, uh, comment on speedruns as well as a, as a form of that. This is all great stuff. I mean, I could you know go on any of these things at, at length for a full hour, right? But glitches, I'm just a big fan of glitches, especially in these larger scale games that I'm talking about. And where I think they have more likelihood to surface 
and crop up in part because the, yeah, the systems are so complicated. The graphical systems are really complicated. And so like every time a new big hotly anticipated game comes out, there's always something that's frankly hilarious that pops up on the internet, right? With like faces disappearing. So there's just like eyeballs and muscles underneath or like people's like heads shearing off. One of my favorite games as an example for this is Skate 3 from Sony had such great glitches. And it was actually somehow revelatory about skateboarding and that subject in general, right? Because it was like, what is the ultimate skateboarding game? It's not where you can just be a hero and land in like, you know, amazing kickflip or something, right? It's where you wipe out so badly that your body flies apart and you like rocket through a building and you bounce like a hundred times. Like that's sort of like, and the sad thing is that like, they didn't want that, right? The, this, this sort of corporate powers that be were like, oh no, this is making us look bad. We have to like get rid of all of those glitches. And so they took them out, even though I think it was one of the most popular, just emergent grassroots phenomena associated with that game was to like see what the engine can do. And so it was situations like that that really made me think glitches are these systems kind of speaking to us of their own accord. Like nobody wanted that to happen. It happened because we're, because of complexity. They're not living organisms, but they're complex enough to do unpredictable things. So it's like, I think we should be listening to them. Just like we should be studying like what unicellular organisms do like under different situations. There's something fascinating about that potential for complex systems to glitch out. And sometimes I think it, it just says something about what we're intending the game to be about in a really funny way. I remember one of, yeah, one of the fa- my favorite glitches I found was a glitch in a, one of the Arkham City games, the Batman games, where it was only possible to get to a certain spot in that game if you made Batman kind of glitch into a wall so that he like started to vibrate and shake. And then he like just shot up into the sky. And I was like, this is also, you know, not intentionally, but it managed to be a commentary about like how tense Batman is. He's like a really high strung guy, right? And like, that's part of what powers that character. And it came out sort of in that glitch. So, you know, like it's tempting to get a little bit mystical about it, right? Like, oh, this is the you know, the voice of the game. And there are communities of game artists making games that are all about like trying to facilitate the emergence of an unexpected glitch. And I think that's just a really great practice. I think it's a really interesting way for us to relate to technology, to think about as not just an orderly process where we have a designed intention where like, here's what we want the user to be able to do. And if it's an unexpected result, that has to be quashed, right? But like, how would we think about this more as like a garden that's not totally planned where we like see what sort of like wildlife takes root, right? And I think that we have an opportunity to do that creatively with games. That's kind of one of the fascinating things about working with them. You want to talk about speed runs too, right? Sure. Some of the most entertaining yeah. ones that have these, that are entirely built on glitches. So like, you can only do this run if you have this particular PC version, because that is long since it's been patched. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so speed runs, I think, are one of the most enduring and popular forms of playing a game in a way that's not intended, right? So glitches are like the game doing something that's not intended. And speedrunning is a, a way of playing that's not the main intended anticipated way of playing. And that's also a wonderful thing about games, right? It's a little bit hard to watch a film in a way that's totally unintended. You can interpret the film, right? You could like watch a film and be like, I'm going to write a review that's like, here's my understanding of what's going on. Then people might be like, whoa, that blew my mind, right? But the great thing is with a game, because it's malleable at the point of actually experiencing it, you can play a game in a way that like runs completely counter to the intentions of the designer, You can 
break it open or even stay within the bounds. Like even speed runs that are not glitch speed runs, right? Are sometimes just fascinating and interesting and like really come at a game from a totally new angle. And it's possible to actually just watch somebody do that. And that's something that I, I really love about games that I feel like is, is quite distinctive about them. That they're open in this way that lets us do experiments, not just as the people making them, but also as the players. And for me, it's, it's kind of what, like the players are creating a new game inside of an existing game, right? And we see that over and over. And there, there are other examples too, right? Like playing a game as a pacifist, like a war game, but playing as a pacifist, or like people who have played games like Grand Theft Auto and just done something completely different in that game than like than following the storyline or whatever. Because all games have a little bit of that sandbox quality where you can sort of try and see what will happen differently if you if you play around with it. And so there's a whole school of thought and approach to designing games, which is like, let's try and make that more possible. Let's try and make more types of emergent results of play, not just of glitches or bugs. But like have players be able to discover new things that we didn't know were in there. And I think that's that's a great tradition that just has a lot of potential for the future. And I think I'm sort of more excited by that than about the potential of more Hollywood style production where it's like, okay, we we get a scriptwriter, we are gonna tell this amazing story, we get all the right actors who are gonna voice it, and it's like everybody experiences the same story. There's more interesting, weird stuff that we could learn from out in the, you know, the uncharted areas of like well, let's find out what players are going to do with this. That's different. I don't want to go too far in drawing analogies to organic life, but the whole glitch idea and the notion of things that emerge that are unintended, uh, that seems to be part and parcel of what it means to be queer in a way. You have, you have an intended apparatus that has a, de- a set of designed features, and then you have emergent phenomena that comes out that kind of bucks against that supposedly well-defined apparatus. And they, you could call them kind of glitches in a way where the glitches in the intended biology or the intended sociology of, of interaction and things like that. Tyler, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. <laughs> That's what it was intended. <laughs> it is for me personally, such an important reason why all this ties together because yeah, there are a lot of us who own lives with dealing with the law, when dealing with family, any with jobs or any any place where there's expectations that don't fit all sizes, right? That really don't acknowledge the rich panoply of like of human experience and all the ways that people are. That to me is just one of the fundamental ways that in, injustice looks. And I think that maybe one of the most beautiful things that games can do is just allow us to imagine for a second, like, wait, what if we just step outside of that? Like, what if we broke through the wall, right? That's why I'm more interested in games where you can just, like, fall endlessly through the floor in some places than in something that's, like, a completely seamless, pre-designed, boxed-off experience. I see players and younger people who are interested in games more and more interested in this type of stuff as well, doing these types of experiments, and you see some of them getting some commercial success. You know, I think of games like The Stanley Parable or the beginner's guide, those types of games. The fact that they're pretty popular with like people who are not contemplating the philosophy of games suggests to me that there's really something here. Can we take these lessons back to the rest of life? Who knows, right? Like that's the question. Like I, I don't feel like I can say for sure one way or another, but maybe we can find something there. Maybe we can inspire more people to think about systems differently that they can be broken apart, right? I think it's it's increasingly important in a world where There's a lot of people who are just totally lose faith in systems or the way expectations are supposed to be and fall into maybe a a kind of nihilistic void, right? They're like, I don't trust anything. I don't trust the government. I don't trust experts. I trust nothing. It's all lies, right? But I think that there's a place that you can leap to that's beyond that where you're like, okay, 
I don't expect every single pronouncement from a health official to be 100% perfect because they're also operating within a system that has limits. And I don't just submit to authority. I try to understand when it's important you know, to listen to an expert. But it's a little bit of thinking about systems at a meta level, right? Like they're designed things, they have flaws, they have breakages, they can be broken apart and redesigned. And that's part of what's on all of us to think about so that we can, I don't know, undo some of the injustices that are wrecking our society, wrecking each other, wrecking the planet, right? We have to be able to think about this stuff more flexibly. So if I'm one thing that I'm really optimistic about games, it's that yeah, maybe they help you abandon and readopt like new ideas of like systems don't have to work this way. We can undo them, we can refashion them, we can speed run them, we can glitch them. So there's two more directions from what you were just saying that I, I want to make sure that we hit before we get out of here. The first one just being this continuity that I, I love to press home about between being a spectator and being a creator, mm-hmm. that what you're talking about in terms of that these spontaneous things are not possible when you have a giant development team that is crossing every <laughs> T and you know fixing every possible thing. One of these articles that I'll link folks to, just making things and being alive about it, the queer game scene was specifically referring to these designers. They're basically artists. Like, I want to express myself. This mass media is not giving me a way to express whether it's my queerness or whatever. And so just make your own games. You know, it's very much aligns with the punk DIY scene that there's, you know, just philosophically as a game maker, there seems to be something really tying that exploring things beyond the norm and just doing it yourself. Yeah, I think we've reached that point in games. Like games were not like that at all when I started working in the industry. It was pretty unusual to be sort of making games outside expected molds. And yeah, it was in the, you know... the beginning of the last decade, that that kind of DIY spirit really took off. And actually, in some places, it was directly connected to the DIY punk music scene. In New York, we have an organization called Baby Castles, which is kind of the most DIY making video games and out of cardboard boxes and circuits kind of uh, scene where they exhibit games that are works of art for the public and at parties and things like that. And they were sort of originally related to uh, Silent Barn, which was the sort of the DIY punk organization in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's no coincidence that you see some of that spirit bursting out. Uh, yeah, and again, it's like this. there was this magic moment where the tools became inexpensive and accessible enough for a lot of people to get into it. There was a whole generation of people who had grown up with all sorts of games, right? Who were not just interested in replicating the games that they saw as youths, but then we're saying, wait a second, we want to redo this our own way. The games that we played in the 80s or 90s, we may have nostalgia for them, but they weren't us, right? They didn't really represent our, our voices, right? So that moment, if I think of like, when did games really become artistic, as opposed to like, are games art, which, you know, it's like, whatever, sure, they're creative things, like, they're definitely art. But that artistic spirit really, I think, has blossomed in the last 10 years. And for me, teaching students, you know, I'm, I teach in an art school. And part of my personal mission is to try and help more young people find that for themselves, figure out, like, do they have something to say with games? Can they find new ways for games to mean things? Will that connect up to these, like, bigger games that we're talking about? Will we see some of that spirit actually making it to the big leagues? I guess that's that's a big question for any creative industry, right? Whether you're talking about music or movies or whatever, it's always difficult. There's always the money pressure and sort of forcing things into a mold and in games, yeah, just this le- this week, there's been like horrible news 
coming out of Activision Blizzard, one of the biggest American game studios, that they're being investigated and taken to court by the state of California for uh, how poorly they've been treating their female employees to like a horrendous degree. So they're there are a lot of huge challenges in, in like trying to make games as art, right? Like, are you going to be a starving artist or are you going to try and make money and try to fit into this industry? It's tough, but I guess I can't say it's any different than, uh, than any industry. There's a continuity between I'm going to ins- create something or create a, a situation to inspire you to do your own creations. And I will create a game that you can do mods to. You can make your own StarCraft maps. You can do and then stretching out to merely an open world thing. You're still all within the confines of the game. You don't have to know any programming, but I will give you the chance to do whatever you want. And of course, once you get out to that level, it might seem like a sandbox open world approach that is completely like giving you an alternative to the straight up win condition, lose condition. You know, So in that sense, it's an open world sandbox things is queering in that you know wide, we're not going to have a linear path that you have to follow to get to the end of the game. One of the videos I was looking at was pointing out something in Grand Theft Auto V about how there are trans characters in that. And because of the nature of Grand Theft Auto V, that you can just beat up anybody and all the characters are portrayed in kind of humiliating, humorous ways that like as a sandbox game, you could make your entire experience of Grand Theft Auto V. Let me go to the trans part of town and beat up the trans characters. So, of course, when you offer this degree of freedom, there is this chance that was pointed out by this video of just abusing it to mm-hmm. you know, indulge in your worst kind of fantasies. Absolutely, right? It's like, I don't know, in some ways I think of it as if I sell you some paints or a guitar, you can absolutely use that to make something horrible and racist too, right? And with Grand Theft Auto, I don't know, it's not quite the same, right? Because they're obviously trying to be edgy. Mm-hmm. And the whole vibe of the game, I think that the, this is part of why these deeper structural things are important, because that's a game about everybody's horrible, all your most cynical jokes about humans all sort of come true in the same dirty city, right? And so it sort of doesn't matter what you do to people, because like everyone's kind of bad. And so you can run around committing crimes. So that's a certain type of fantasy, and we shouldn't be surprised that it has this sort of, oh, equal opportunity discrimination vibe to it. Yeah, but there, there are all sorts of other possibilities out there, right? So like, like, think about something like Minecraft, right? Like, obviously, it's still one of the biggest games. Mm-hmm. We also wouldn't be surprised if there was some horrible neo-Nazi making stuff in <laughs> Minecraft, but then we'd just be like, whatever, jerk, like, go away. Like, that content that you're making should not be publicized or put where children can find it, but nobody's going to stop you from making that out of Minecraft blocks or, or Lego bricks or something like that, right? So it's funny, there is a little bit of a dividing line between... Yeah, like, when are you a creator? And when are you just experiencing something that someone else gave you? Where's the responsibility of the creator of the, you know, the game developer? And I think this is going to be a bigger and bigger question as games like Minecraft and Roblox and uh, Fortnite think of themselves more and more as worlds where people are making things. And so all of those big companies that are running those games and those platforms or think about it in a walled garden approach, right? They're kind of inspired by Apple in some ways, right? So they're going to try and keep everything sanitized within their confines. But I don't think we're that far away from a more open-ended version of that. Maybe it's like the next coming of a tool like Second Life in a more accessible and fun way than, than that, that game, where it really will be like, yeah, like you can make whatever you want. You can have any type of play experience you want, and you can probably team up with other people. You can sell it. I mean, that's why Microsoft is really interested and and uh, and Epic with Fortnite, right? They want 
people to make things, make their own creations in those platforms, which then they'll sell to other people and, and Microsoft will take a cut or something, right? Like that's their, their new big business plan. But it is going to come with all of these problems, just like the rest of the internet, obviously, comes sure, with the problems sure. of like making a web page. So I don't, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens and whether, yeah, I don't know. I feel like we're on the cusp of people understanding like, okay, this is not exactly a video games are, are violent or have racy content issue. It's a, like a human beings issue, right? Just mm-hmm. because we've seen things like when, when people make AI bots and set them out there and, and they learn from the internet then the bots are, the AIs are racist and terrible, right? Because we raised them mm-hmm. that way. And it's kind of the, the same thing is sort of true of a lot of these tools and malleable experiences. Like, of course, we can make them into something horrible because as a group of people on the internet, we're kind of collectively not the nicest species in the universe <laughs> somehow, right? Like we, we, we're confronted with the ugly sides of ourselves, or at least collectively. Yeah, so we, it's just something we have to reckon with. Yeah, I did just Google search how to make a swastika in Minecraft and got plenty of results. So <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, that, that lowered See, my. Uh, <laughs> I would think it would be pretty obvious. It's you, you could make it from blocks. It's not that hard. <laughs> oh, that, oh, you're saying they have tutorials? Yeah, well, that's, like that's a German funny. flag banner tutorial. I don't know about banners in Minecraft. What? I haven't played. <laughs> One thing I'll say that that I learned because I, as far as gaming is concerned, I've always been interested in the dynamic between the the active participant, the passive participant, and the creator. And it seems like new games now are merging all three of these things where you, as the creator, you can become an active participant. And then once you release something into the hands of the crowd, you become the observer and watching other active, other participants engage. And I find that your intuitions about this are are very profound. And I think that beyond just othering and looking at it from a queer perspective, which I think is important, analyzing games from these multifaceted perspectives, I think is like you say, will carry the standard linear and the standard sandbox and the standard puzzle game forward into hopefully seeing more users create more interesting and more innovative and more othering things that can blow the pieces up and reassemble it in something revolutionary or interesting or what have you. So I appreciate Yeah, I really hope so too. I mean, I'm a kid of the early internet back before we had these extremely large tech companies kind of dominating the landscape of like social media platforms, right? And back then, yeah, it was definitely like anybody could make a web page on GeoCities or whatever or have a blog. It was like a thousand different weird plants in a wild garden. And of course, some of them were horrible. It's like, and you know, everybody would be like, look at this horrible thing. But it wasn't the same types of problems that we have today. And maybe I'm just being a nostalgic fogey, right? <laughs> It's like these things getting amplified, misinformation being amplified on Twitter, Facebook. It's a little different than like everybody having their own weird thing in their backyard, which I I guess personally, I'm just more interested in like, yeah, let everybody make weird stuff and some of it's going to be great, right? Instead of like these platforms are managing it so they can sell your data, you know, it's pretty, uh, but it's like the parking lot version of the internet. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Naomi. Thank you so much. It was awesome. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me on. We'll link to all your work. Anything in particular you just want to plug before we get out of here? I think, you know, the thing that I'm really passionate about is the, is the NYU Game Center. So if you just want to, uh, to check out gamecenter.nyu.edu, that's where I'm putting my heart and soul right now. And we have a lot of amazing student work that we showcase every year, too. And so, yeah, if you want to see weird experiments that are going on, like what are people thinking of next, I try to look at my own students' work. All right. Thank Thanks, you. everybody, for listening. Thanks. 
Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.